Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly. I also work at the American Enterprise Institute. And? and Julia Zosa with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Mason Clark, lead Russia analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Mason, I want to turn to you um, requesting a general update on what's happening in Ukraine in terms of fighting on, on, on the various fronts. Uh, but also uh, with, with with sort of your assessment uh, of uh, of the significance of the sinking of of of, of Moskva, the, uh, the 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 Russian uh, the Russian ship that was that was sunk yesterday on 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 a Thursday, I have only two things to to say about that ship. One is that I always try to calibrate sort of the size of these. These, these ships and military equipment against something I know. So I compared the uh, displacement against the displacement of, of the Austro-Hungarian dreadnought Viribus Unitis <laughs> that was sunk by the Italians in 1918. Turns out that the Austro-Hungarian dreadnought was bigger uh, in terms of displacement, but the Russian ship was longer than 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 than, than the... So, so it looks like it a pretty <laughs> substantial substantial piece of equipment that was Well, it, it was headed for as well. Uh, and also, um, the, the second sort of related point or question is that there has been some sort of disagreements about the, the sort of military significance, about what the ship was able to do, uh, what kind of targets it was able to, 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 to hit, whether it was used only to control the airspace or, 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 or hit uh, targets on the ground. So, so maybe if we could start with the ship and then we can sort of you know, branch out and look at what's happening in the south, in the Donbass and, and elsewhere. And Thanks again for, for being with us. Of course, it's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, it has been something else seeing the sudden uh, revival of talking about the Battle of Tsushima, which is, of course, when the Japanese Navy sunk uh, the last time the Russians lost a flagship 110 years ago. So not a good repeat there. Um, so, yeah, the Moskva was probably most important uh, as a symbol, both to U Ukrainians as well as to the Russians, as the uh, flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, which is one of Russia's four fleets. You know, one thing that's important to note is that the Kremlin is still maintaining that the Moskva sank due to an accidental ammunition explosion and a fire on board. That's not a good explanation either. The two that explanations that, that you, Ukrainian... There was also a storm, they say. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. So it's, it's either the Ukrainian Navy sank it in combat, which arguably seems like a quote-unquote better way to lose it, or the crew and safety features on the Black Sea <laughs> ship, flagships was so bad that they had a fire breakout that detonated all of their ammunition. That doesn't speak very positively of the Russian Navy either. It's also been very interesting to note that the Kremlin propaganda networks like Russia One, their main TV channels, are having problems with this frame story because all of the main Russia One uh, talk shows last night were uh, on April 14th were blaming Ukraine and saying Russia will avenge the loss of the Moskva. Well, how do you avenge it if it was an accidental fire, which is still what the Kremlin is saying? So they're tripping over their own narratives here, um, which is interesting. 
Of course, it's going to be a huge propaganda victory to Kiev that Moscow was the warship involved in the very famous Snake Island incident at the beginning of the war. And it's something that the Kremlin's not going to be able to cover up for a domestic audience. Now, in terms of actual impact, it was one, of course, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. So it was likely coordinating some command and control for that squadron. Though that likely won't have too much of an impact because the fleet is being run directly out of Sevastopol. They're operating in their home waters here. It's un unlike Russian operations in the Mediterranean and Syria, for example. They don't really need an additional on-station uh, command ship. Um, and the main thing that the Moskva was providing, apparently, was more air defenses. Uh, it wasn't participating in, and actually, to be clear, I got this wrong yesterday. Um, so this is a correction. It was not participating in uh, strikes on Ukrainian ground targets. It's primarily built as a service-to-service -service warship. It was built by the Soviet Navy to take out uh, American carrier groups, essentially. And secondary to that, providing air cover for other Russian warships. That's probably going to be the main impact here. We actually saw reports uh, coming out of the Pentagon late yesterday that after the Moskva sank, um, again, this is not something you would do if it was due to an accident. Russian warships pulled back from the Ukrainian coastline a good distance. So likely that's going to impede their efforts to, uh, for other warships to carry out strikes on Ukrainian coastal targets. I, I know last time I was on the podcast, I discussed that a, um, a Russian amphibious landing on Odessa was already very unlikely. I think it's almost completely off the table at this point uh, if Ukraine has demonstrated this capability to use the Neptune missiles uh, to strike Russian warships, not to mention deliveries that are in progress from the UK of other classes of uh, anti-ship missiles. So certainly a demonstration of Ukrainian capability, unlikely to be a decisive change uh, in the Russian campaign, um, but a blow to morale uh, nonetheless and may sort of tactically impede uh, the activities of Black Sea Fleet. Um, before we move on to other things, it's such a bright day in uh, in uh, Black Sea security with this um, with this ship being um, sunken. But I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about. Um, I mean, I know it's just speculation about what hit it, and obviously for people who like me have been celebrating that it's um, that it's down and we were waiting for it for such a long time there's plenty more to go and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of discussions about um, the harpoon missiles if they um, are already there if they're operational it, what the impediments are to be able to um, hit um, other uh, other Russian ships and just a quick kind of boring but quick um, explainer um, for um, our listeners that are asking the question of the Montreux Convention um, mm -hmm. whether they can get out or in the Russian fleet the situation is that Turkey indeed declared there's war so that means that um, ships under the Black Sea Fleet um, can get in and out as much as they'd like. Um, the rest of the ships that are there then are, are not under Black Sea Fleet flag, so to speak, they can get out, but they cannot get in anymore unless they're being reflagged as part of the Black Sea Fleet. So great that Turkey's done that, um, but it doesn't mean much, at least not in the short and, and medium term. And now turning to you, Mason. What are, what are the chances that we might see more of this? 
Right. So I don't have a good insight, unfortunately, into how much of these capabilities the Ukrainian military has. Uh, this was almost certainly the first time that the Neptune has been fired in combat. It only entered the Ukrainian arsenal in 2019 uh, and was a domestically produced missile to, quite frankly, do exactly this, sink the Russian Black Sea Fleet. This is what it was designed for, uh, to push back on any potential Russian invasion. Um, I certainly think that the Ukrainians are going to try and threaten them. The one asterisk is that, um, as with most precision weapons in this war on both sides, Ukraine and Russia, just because uh, a given side can has one or two strikes of it, these are likely very small stockpiles. We've seen this throughout the war, particularly for the Russians, uh, in that, yes, they had a lot of very high-tech munitions, but nowhere near the large stockpiles that uh, the U.S. or a NATO state would have. And frankly, the Ukrainian military is probably in the same boat. Well, that was a terrible pun, um, which is why a lot of these continued UK and NATO resupplies are uh, going to be so important, is that even if the Ukrainian military can do it once, it's unclear how much they could support it. But in terms of larger implications, as you mentioned, uh, for the Russian fleet as a whole, we have been watching that of how much the Russians are going to try and rotate warships in from either the Baltic fleet uh, or possibly... Uh, the Northern Fleet, although that would be quite uh, a longer trip and is highly unlikely, I don't think. Now, it depends on the munition. We do think that uh, Russian warships could also support operations in Ukraine from the Mediterranean. We saw this in reverse in Syria, actually, of Russian warships in the Black Sea were able to uh, provide some missile support to Russian operations in Syria, though it is certainly going to uh, be an impediment to Russian operations, um, as I mentioned, in terms of air defense they likely will have to either change their operating capacity here or try and rotate another warship in. Um, and of course, it would remain to be seen whether Turkey would contest them saying, oh, no, this frigate is now part of the Black Sea Fleet, therefore it's allowed to be in. Um, likely, they will try and hold the Russians to essentially their pre-war organizations. And the, the letter of the Montreux Convention is that only warships permanently based in the Black Sea can go in and out of the Black Sea uh, during an armed conflict. So almost certainly will have uh, impediments uh, in that sense on what the Russians can do. Before we um, uh, leave the, the maritime front, so to speak, uh, I wanted to maybe tease out a few more points on the, uh, on the Neptune and on the harpoons that are supposedly on the way to replace them. Uh, I mean, as you said, the, the Neptune was a, a fairly new introduction to the uh, Ukrainian arsenal, and when it was first fielded, it did not have a, uh, a, a self-guiding warhead on it. I don't know actually whether it does now, um, but the harpoons do. Um, and so your point about how the Russian fleet is likely to have to operate from much farther distances away, and how they will acquire targets and how the Ukrainians will acquire targets. I'd also be sort of super interested to know what kind of picture we're giving to the Ukrainians of uh, Russian, at least surface operations in the, in the Black Sea fleet. I, I, I'm sure that we are capable of doing that. And I'm also pretty sure that we're sharing a ton of intel with them. But, you know, I wonder whether we're also seeing kind of a shift in the battlefield balance uh, once these harpoons arrive uh, and, and that the ability of the Russian fleet to really influence the course of events 
is heading for a precipitous uh, decline. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's certainly possible. Um, we can't confirm from open sources if the U.S. Uh, or NATO is sharing intelligence with Ukraine, but I certainly would believe it. Um, but I, I agree that this is in many ways sort of um, already uh, accelerating, so to speak, something that was happening because the, this is the second major loss of the Russian Navy. A few weeks ago, we saw that Ukrainian strike on the landing ship that was docked in Berdyansk, and that already, uh, which is an occupied port in southern Ukraine, that already changed a lot of Russian operating patterns because they were using that sea route to resupply forces that are fighting around Kherson. Um, and this likely will disrupt that even further. Um, and as one of the main challenges throughout this war has been keeping these multiple Russian axes, even though they're now down to only two or three, fully resupplied and fed with replacements, it's likely going to be trickier and trickier. I have seen some speculation that possibly the Ukrainian Navy could like threaten the Kurt Strait Bridge or that sort of thing. I think that may be pushing it a little bit. I, I really hope they can, but I think that would require um, a much greater infusion of support uh, for the Ukrainian Navy, which has been basically bottled up in port since the first day of the war. Well, why don't we go ahead and shift to sort of um, the situation yeah. uh, on the ground? And, and Mason, again, why don't you give us uh, your overview and then we'll uh, have at it from there? Sure. So the Russian forces are still conducting these small daily attacks uh, in two main areas. One, just frontal assaults in eastern Ukraine, uh, primarily the towns of Rubizhna and Popozna um, are the focuses right now. And then second, forces coming southeast from Kharkiv through Izium. Um, it's strange. The Russians are, they're both maintaining these small daily attacks that aren't making progress while conducting a larger buildup, which is, of course, getting a lot of coverage of both the remaining Russian units that had never been deployed to Ukraine, as well as very notably um, forces that were withdrawn from northeastern Ukraine, which I'll touch on in a second. But they're not pausing their operations uh, to fully cohere these units in. What we would have, ex what we probably would have expected, and what's much more in line with Russian doctrine, is that you would conduct a full operational pause. They would stop these attacks for you know five days to a week to fully integrate these new units in before then launching a major offensive. They're not doing that. They're particularly around Rubizhna and Popozna in the east. They're just bleeding their forces out even as these additional uh, reinforcements are coming in. And we're not really seeing them having a chance of uh, making any immediate breakthroughs. Now, to be totally clear, while I think the Ukrainian military is a very good shot of resisting uh, this new Russian offensive, I don't want to say that's a given. The sheer weight of numbers uh, and Russian uh, artillery power may be able to at least uh, secure them additional small territorial gains. I doubt they'd be able to secure a full encirclement of Russian forces, or pardon me, Ukrainian forces in the east, though they could get through with minor advances, though that wouldn't be the end of the campaign. But the key challenge we're facing here, or seeing the Russians face here, is that it's going to take some time to bring in these damaged units and integrate them into command structures. Big inflection is actually just yesterday on April 14th, we got the first confirmation that elements of the second combined arms army, which was previously in Sumy, is in Eastern Ukraine, just behind the town of Sinodonetsk. This is the first confirmation we've had of damaged units from Northeastern Ukraine, making it all the way around in Donbass. We've seen a few of them in Izium, but this is the first time they've made it all the way around. We don't think they're going to be very combat effective uh, and restored, particularly anything from the Kiev axis. I think we can write off as an effective unit at this point in the war without uh, 
much longer recuperation and reconstruction times. So the Russians are going to try and funnel all these forces in and, and likely introduce even more command and control difficulties uh, into what they've been doing. Um, of course, a lot has been made of Alexander Dvornikov, who is the commander of the Southern Military District, being appointed the overall uh, commander of Russian operations in Ukraine. This, it, it makes sense for the Russian military to have done this. It wasn't, there wasn't really any other options because the Russian military is only launching offensive operations in Dvornikov's area of responsibility. It would have been very strange if they had substituted in the commander of the Western Military District or the Eastern Military District in his place. His forces have also largely been the most effective uh, in the war to date, and he is the most senior of Russia's military district commanders. He's the only one who's an army general, which is a, a formal rank just below marshal in the Russian uh, hierarchy. So he makes sense as the, as the commanding officer here. And while he did command the initial Russian deployment in Syria, it's been a little overstated that that Syrian experience is going to make a huge difference because every Russian military district commander has experience in Syria. Dvornikov's actually got some of the least. He was there for 10 months. Uh, the Western military district commander was there for 24 and the Eastern military district commander was there for 20. So he's on the lower end. And while he did participate in the Battle of Aleppo, which was major urban combat, um, very unfortunately, war crimes in Syria were not restricted to Dvornikov, um, and there was urban combat throughout the war. So it's not like he was a particular specialist uh, in urban combat. So while in general it is a, a very belated decision for the Russian military to finally make appoint him as single overall commander, it makes sense and is unlikely to really overhaul Russian operations at this point in the war. Can we point to a Russian general who has had anything approximating the experience of coordinating attacks on multiple axes um, on a scale such as even this reduced scale that the Russians are, um, uh, are, are now heading toward? I mean, <laughs> what makes us think that this... You know, other than the easy, the butcher of Aleppo, and you know, is very scary. Um, why, why is it? Should we said anybody who's being objective about this believes that he is a superior commander uh, to whoever he's replacing? Because again, who in the Russian high command has done anything like this in their careers? Right. And none of them have. The latest convention, well, I mean, actually, Dvornikov's the most qualified because he's been running the fighting in Donbass since 2016 um, as Southern Military District Commander. The most that any of these guys have done in... Which is, has been, like, very, I mean, not, not striking in its imaginative tactics. Right. It's very, it's, it was very static, lots of just daily artillery shelling, that sort of thing. Um, the, I mean, the latest major conventional fighting these guys did would have been either the Russo-Georgian War or for most of them, it was the Second Chechen War back in the early mm -hmm. 2000s because, you know, their Syria experience counts, but was somewhat different and certainly was not commanding Russian forces um, as on the whole here. And even more directly, I was actually just speaking with a couple of my colleagues about this this morning. A more fascinating element of this is not only have they not commanded these operations, but it, we increasingly are thinking that Russian exercises didn't really prepare them for this because the Russian cap, major capstone exercises like Sapad uh, and Kavkaz that they run every year 
are so highly regimented and very few of them are force on force, which would be, you know, a Russian battalion simulating a battle against another Russian battalion. They're just operating on ranges. They've almost gotten themselves into a place where they are rehearsing for exercises, not rehearsing for combat. And we're seeing that in a lot of Russian operations where, okay, yes, they have sent entire, in these major exercises, entire regiments and brigades sweeping across open fields in Belarus, but those are strictly choreographed and on designated military ranges that are planned weeks ahead of time. And the, tr- the experience isn't translating, and the actual Russian forces are not showing themselves to be very good at it. They're very road-bound, as I know, uh, Giselle, you've talked about in the, fa- in the past, and they're just simply not doing anything that they, quote-unquote, should based on these exercises because they're not able to actually apply that to a real combat situation. Right. The only thing missing is the Kaiser leading the cavalry charge at the end. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get to that too. Um, but, but Mason, I was going to ask you um, about, uh, first of all, about the situation in Mariupol. Uh, what's your sense of how much longer the defenders of Mariupol, including the Azov Battalion, can 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 hold at least parts of the city? I've seen v- various sort of estimates, assessments of that. Some people saying that well, maybe there can be some form of resistance, uh, you know, going on for weeks, if not if not if not longer. And and secondly, um, these territorial gains that Russians may have made in the south, out of Crimea, uh, to the east, to, 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 to Donbass, uh, you know, like how how robust are they in the sense that if if the war were to go in a direction favorable to Ukraine, like how, how you know, difficult would it be for the Ukrainians to retake some, some or all of that territory? Sure. Uh, so I'll actually start with the second point there, the fighting uh, coming out of Crimea and around Kherson. So Russian defensive positions are a little shaky there. Um, there's been pretty sustained Ukrainian counterattacks for the last few weeks, both in the northern area of Kherson Oblast uh, near a city called Kriviri, um, but more importantly, very directly west of Kherson city. Uh, Ukrainian forces are currently... The information picture is a little shaky, but we think about 30 to 40 kilometers west of the city itself. Um, and they've been deploying additional forces for a larger offensive. Now, I don't think they're going to be able to concentrate the combat power necessary to retake Kherson itself uh, in the near future, but they're certainly pushing Russian forces back from defensive positions uh, throughout the Oblast into very undefensible terrain, which is sort of the key thing here, is ensuring that the Russians are having to, you know, set up their defensive positions in open fields and just Mm -hmm. on highways, rather than having the rivers and major hills to defend behind. So certainly seeing uh, Ukrainian pressure down there. And I mean, again, in the near future, I think we can real, we can rule out any renewed Russian advance towards Mykolaiv and onwards to Odessa. They've been pretty constrained there. I also wonder about what is essentially a pretty tenuous or must be tenuous in places, lines of communications between Crimea uh, to Mariupol and from Mariupol eastward, which, you know, just having looked at the terrain a bit there, it's, you know, it's just sort of coastline, you know, very few roads. It seems like the, just the sort of thing that, that uh, the Ukrainians would excel at, uh, you know, harassing, if not cutting entirely. Yeah, and we've actually, on that point, um, I mean, speaking of unclear information pictures, but we are seeing growing reports of Ukrainian partisan activity uh, in areas of southern Ukraine. Um, and the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense is starting to actually openly claim these. They said... 
uh, either yesterday or on the 13th that since mid-March, uh, 70 Russian personnel in Melitopol, which is a city sort of northwest of Mariupol, have been killed by Ukrainian partisans, which is the first official claim by the Ukrainian military itself uh, of any sort of activity there. And they're likely, if they're starting to formally announce that, they may be trying to supply it and amplify it. Um, so that almost certainly will be threatening uh, Russian supply lines as well, as you note. Um, and Mariupol itself has been a very interesting case. Uh, frankly, again, to be very clear, we we thought that at ISW that Mariupol was going to fall faster than this, but the Ukrainian military must have done a truly impressive job of stockpiling resources um, to basically repel exactly this. I mean, for since 2014, this Mariupol is a key. If the Russians were going to launch a major offensive, they would have needed to roll through Mariupol. And the Ukrainian military seems to have done a very good job of preparing for exactly that. Um, from what we can tell, they're still largely Ukrainian defenders are basically holed up in um, two defensive positions, one in the port in the southwest uh, and then two uh, at the Azovstal steel plant in the east, which is where we got those claims that we can't confirm uh, possible Russian use of chemical weapons. Um, the Russians are steadily taking ground. Uh, they cleared another Ukrainian position uh, north of Azovstal a couple days ago that was held by the Ukrainian 36 Marine Brigade. Um, the Russians claim that they captured over a thousand Ukrainian personnel. That we don't think is true, but they did inflict casualties and take a few uh, Ukrainian prisoners during that breakout. So really where we're at now is it's going... the. It is truly a matter of time until the Russians take Mariupol, but the key thing is that they're taking high losses doing it. It's not like these Russian forces are likely to be very combat effective and be freed up for other operations once they take the city. And certainly Russian Rosgardia forces, uh, the National Guard is sort of their internal repression force, are going to have their hands full in Mariupol. I, the uh, scale of resistance we've seen in Kherson and Melitopol is going to be at least matched uh, in Mariupol if they are able to take it. So at this point, honestly, I'm not sure I can say anything more than, yes, Russian forces will likely take it. But with how well Ukrainian defenders have done, that still might actually be a few weeks or longer at this point. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you two questions. Um, one is... We've seen yesterday reports of air raids all over Ukraine and um, reports of um, bombings even in Kyiv. And uh, in the West, we've been so hasty in saying, oh, the Battle of Kyiv is over. They're never going to come back. It's done. And I know bombing does not mean coming back on the ground, but can you give us kind of your assessment of where we should be with this analysis and how um, how likely it is that the Russians are going to and how capable they are to launch a, a kind of a, an ongoing more or less bombing campaign, not just on Kiev, but on the West, too. We've seen singular strikes here and there. But I wonder if they are able to and how likely you assess um, them to do that um, as we're looking into the next few weeks of war. And then the the second part is a bit of a geeky question back to military exercises and and Russian military reform and what we're learning now from the ground. Um, for years, we looked at the, these exercises as being indicative in, in the planning, in the scenario, as well as in, in, as in the execution sometimes 
off um, future or um, almost ongoing interventions. We've seen that with with Syria. We've seen it with Georgia. We've seen it with um, with Ukraine in 2014. But we also know that um, the military reform that had been ongoing earlier on, particularly under Sergikov, after he was fired and replaced with Shoigu, kind of failed in the sense of, and again, this is a superficial understanding, but in the sense of um, going back to these skeleton units um, that the generals were supporting because of corruption and all of that, and that that makes them, um, uh, re-enabling them after Sergikov leaves, um, makes them be so ineffective now in exercises as well as in this intervention. So um, I know you've been following this for a while. I wonder, I wonder if you can help us make sense of that. Sure. So on the Russian air campaign, yeah, as you note, I think there's a high likelihood that the Russians are going to try and maintain at least sporadic airstrikes across northeastern Ukraine um, and in western Ukraine for some time. In large part, trying to tie down Ukrainian forces and air defenses. We definitely, they're still keeping a screening force in Belarus just enough essentially to threaten that they could resume offensive operations if the Ukrainian military fully pulls a lot of its forces away. Um, and that's likely a similar point uh, with the airstrikes is just to prevent Kiev from fully returning to a more stable footing, keeping air defenses in the area, um, possibly trying to strike uh, Ukrainian rear areas as well, um, though Certainly, the Russian capabilities have been degraded by, uh, as we discussed earlier, the lack of precision munitions this late um, and likely just growing casualties and wear and tear in the Russian Air Force as a whole. Though I think it will be we're we're sort of on track for a more low level air campaign. Uh, The Ukrainian Air Force is still sporadically active, but the Russian Air Force certainly hasn't gotten air superiority um, and they'll likely continue these sorts of low pace of strikes uh, across the country. Um, in terms of the exercises, yeah, it's all excellent points in terms of the reversals of the Serdukov's attempted reforms to sort of modernize and slim down the Russian military. Um, and we're, of course, seeing now the, you know, the deficiencies of the still conscript based system in many ways of the Russian military um, in terms of both deployments to Syria and Ukraine and how that's translating. A lot of those, those were sort of a chosen slice of the Russian military that deployed, either the Air Force or specific officers, or of course, uh, the the BTGs that went to Ukraine in 2014 and 2015 were uh, a very small portion of the Russian military and likely much better units than what we're seeing. Because they've had to conduct operations at the scale necessary to actually invade Ukraine, we're seeing what sort of the the sum total uh, of the Russian military actually looks like. Uh, in an uncontrolled environment, which is much lower capability, of course, than these sort of boutique operations, so to speak, as well as these exercises that can be, you know, planned way in advance. It's much easier to make a conscript-filled battalion conduct a frontal assault when you spend three weeks preparing how to do it and then do it once on terrain that you know, which is not, of course, not at all what they're facing uh, in Ukraine. It, it still is surprising, though, that how poor these Russian operations have been, because even at that level, we expected before the war that they would have been better at operational planning than they have been, because quite simply, the Russian campaign plan has been very all over the place. They didn't seem to prepare well for the multiple axes of advance that they tried in February. And such a hallmark of the Russian military, um, and not to overestimate this point, but with, and going back into Soviet eras, which is still the main heritage of all of this uh, modern Russian thinking, 
is that sure, your individual soldier and unit isn't as good at the tactical level, but if you do well enough at the operational level, you can still win the campaign. But we're seeing them fail at both the tactical and operational levels here, which is not what we would have anticipated going in. So they're not they're not doing what they quote unquote should have to correct the deficiencies of this conscript based force um, and their inability to have implemented those reforms. You're running out of time, but I was hoping to squeeze in one final <laughs> looking at Giselle, who's very disappointed. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping to squeeze one quick question, and maybe Giselle, you can sort of add yours. No, we'll just put that. a link to the article that I just wrote up afterwards. So that's... we'll <laughs> definitely do that. So um, the, I don't want to turn this, and we don't have time to turn this into a Germany bashing session. Uh, but there has been oh, in contrast to what, what, what Germany has been doing quite a bit of enthusiasm about the military aid coming into Ukraine from some other Central Eastern European countries. The Czech Republic is sending its RM-70 vampire system. You know, there's some older tanks from Poland and the Czech Republic coming in, Slovakia's uh, air defense system. Uh, some conversations sort of resurfacing about the MiGs, helicopters, etc. Uh, so I wonder how big, in your view, is the gap between uh, what Ukrainians are getting and what they need and what they can also reasonably be expected to operate successfully in their in their defense against the Russians and again and, and in their efforts to, to repel them out of out of Ukraine. Uh how you know how excited should we be about these 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 sort of deliveries about of these larger weapon systems? Well they're certainly important, but I think the the two key things here will be the pace that they're delivered at and then how much uh sustained support there is. Because it's all well and good if Ukraine, or it's not all well and good, really, is a better way of saying that, if Ukraine only gets these T-72s a month from now. If they get them in two weeks and can ship them to eastern Ukraine to push back on when the Russians do launch a major offensive, that's going to be a big deal. But if we get these announcements of new systems, uh, supplies of mix, that sort of thing, to where they only come after uh, the Russian offensive is already really kicked off, when they do cohere these reinforcements, that's going to be less important. Because I do think what we're going into here, essentially, is the Russians are going to try a larger offensive in the next month or so um, and probably have mixed to no success, uh, I'll say. But the war is going to protract further. And what's really going to be essential is sustaining this support to the Ukrainian military of both getting them what they need now to conduct counterattacks, but ensuring that the aid doesn't dry up. Because there's still very much, I think, a worry, uh, I would say, of not Europe, Europe losing interest is not quite the right phrase, but it's close in terms of, okay, well, this is done. It's moved from the headlines. Ukraine has beaten back the initial attack. We can stop doing this and there can be a ceasefire. What's going to be really important is that the Ukrainian military is enabled to actually conduct counterattacks if they can, drive back Russian forces and sustain this for the coming months, particularly if the Kremlin tries to reconstitute as it drags on into the summer and launch yet another offensive operation. So sort of this mix of giving them the higher end capabilities they need right now, but making sure that that's not where aid to Ukraine ends, because this is going to be a war for some time, even if it returns to being a frozen conflict. Okay, I I want 40 seconds to sermonize and then I'll shut up. So I, I think Mason hit the nail on the head. I mean, we should be thinking not simply about how to get them T-72s and BMPs and, you know, uh, 122 uh, artillery and stuff like that, but also as fast as possible, 
to transition the Ukrainians to, uh, you know, combat overmatch systems. If somehow, you know, there is no reason on the planet that uh, the Ukrainian military couldn't operate M1 Bradley, 109 Paladins, um, F-16s and things like that, and that the sustainment could come from contractors. This There is a giant universe in the United States and in the West of people who know how to uh, provide sustainment. That's the way the U.S. Army operates, uh, you know, it, in, it, in its invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, there, there was a, uh, you know, an iceberg of uniform forces that was floating in a sea of uh, contractors. That's what we really need to be pointing at is giving, even if the best that the Ukrainians can do is to blunt further Russian offensives, it's the next round where it's possible and it should be imperative to really give, you know, so... If the Russians don't, if, if they try and fail and still uh, are truculent in holding on to territory, the threat that they should face is being kicked out of the rest of Ukraine by the next time they decide to, you know, get in the ring with the, the Ukrainian army. Okay. Here ends the sermon. Uh, Mason, do you agree with that, yes or no? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wonderful. That's great to sort of end on a on a note of unanimity. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Mason, thank you so much. From Dalibor Rohaj. Giselle Donnelly and... Julia Zoza. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Once again, many thanks to our special guest today, Mason Clark. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.